Please stand with me for the reading of the scripture. The reading this morning comes from Matthew 18, verses 1 to 14. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. This is God's word. Please have a seat. If you'd like to follow along, you can open your Bibles to Matthew 18. The verses will also be on the screen behind you. Jesus Christ turned our world upside down. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the peacemakers. The servant is greater than the master. And if you want to be the greatest... You'd be like a little child. Jesus entered a world that had the exact opposite values, and he spoke these truths. He gave us these kingdom values that even bewildered his own disciples. And yet I would say that although we're not good at applying these values and living them out, I believe almost every heart that hears them resonates with them. And so our Western culture has missed the fact that Jesus turned the world upside down because they don't understand that this was not always the value system. Our Values were transformed by the words and the life of Jesus Christ. 
and perhaps most beautifully pictured in the passage that is before us. Let's pray. Our Father, there is so much here we can only skim. And yet skimming your word is going so deep in light. But Father, we will not get anything. These will be words, these will be thoughts, these will be theologies and philosophies unless your spirit takes them and cuts into our hearts with their very truths. Lord, Lord, no matter where we are on the journey today, I pray that each of us would, at least over these next minutes, open our hearts to hear you speak to us. Lord, if there would be any hardness even in my heart, any of our hearts, let it melt away. Soften us to hear the heartbeat, feel the heartbeat of Jesus Christ this morning. Amen. We, we love many of the things in this passage. Be like a little child. Be humble. The greatest is to be humble. Receive a little one like these. Care for the little ones. And then the words of the good shepherd who's willing to leave the 99 to pursue the one until he finds that one and brings them back. These words are sweet to our spirits. But there are other words in this passage that are very harsh to our ears. Woe to you who would cause one of the little ones to stumble. Woe to the world. It is better to pluck out your eye than to go into life. It's better to go into life with one eye than to go into the hell of fire. Sometimes we Christians are embarrassed by the those words that sound so harsh while we lift up the words that are so sweet to our spirits. But it is the same Jesus who spoke all of those words. In some way, because Jesus himself is God and God is love, all of those words are loving words. So, let's take a look at what we're going to see is three kingdom values that Jesus gives us in this passage. The first is humility, to be like a child. The second is to receive a child, to care for them. And thirdly, is to protect the spiritual lives of the little ones. So, first, greatness is found in humility of being like a child. The question that's under discussion in this passage is who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And it was really natural to the context because the disciples had been walking with Jesus. And very recently, Jesus asked them, who is the Christ? And Peter got the answer, or who, who am I? And Jesus got the answer right. Excuse me, Peter got the answer right. You are the Christ. And Jesus said, you are a rock. And I'm going to build my church on you. 
And then shortly after that, he takes three and only three disciples up the Mount of Transfiguration where he is seen in his glory. And then they come down. And I'm sure many of them are wondering, has Jesus just set up the pecking order here? Or is there hope for me to be greatest in the kingdom? And so they ask the question, who is the greatest? The problem isn't to ask that question. If we really want to be great for God, that's a good thing. But if we want to be great to be superior to others, that's a bad thing. And that's exactly where the disciples were at. Because the parallel passage in Luke says that the disciples were secretly arguing among themselves, who is the greatest? I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. And they do this secretly because they know they don't want Jesus to hear that. And it seems like the disciples are obsessed with needing to be superior to one another because it recurs over and over again. Later, John and James' mother is going to go to Jesus and say, make my sons the greatest. Let them sit in the privileged seats when you come in your kingdom. And the other disciples hear it and they get angry at his mother and they get angry at at John and James. And then, in the upper room, after Jesus had just washed their feet to show them how important it is to live humbly before God and others, and after he has taken the cup and the bread and said, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood going to be shed for you, as Jesus pours out the agony in these two symbols, Shortly afterwards, an argument breaks out among them as to who is going to be the greatest. They are obsessed. They are controlled by needing to be better than others. And I believe that same spirit is in me and probably in you. Alfred Adler, uh, one of the fathers of modern psychology, when he was trying to discern what really drives human beings, at one point concluded, we all strive to reach a goal by the attainment of which we shall feel strong, superior, and complete. This is someone who studied human nature, and he says we have a drive to feel superior to others. There's been a number of questionnaires that have shown how we lie to ourselves about our place in the pecking order. There was a survey I'd shared in the past, but I want to bring up is different people were asked, are you better than average or below average? And of all the workers... 86% said, I am better. I do a better job than everyone else. You see, it should be 49% saying that, but 86. If you ask business managers, 90% of them say, I do a better. Maybe they're trying to keep their jobs. I do better. 
College professors, 94% of the most, the intelligent, the elite intelligence, 94%, they probably not the math professors, say, I do a better job than the average. I can look at my own life, and I used to, and, and, and I still do. Compare myself to others. I get jealous when somebody else does a better job than me. And I can remember as a youngster, I would always compare myself with others, and I'd always pick out the quality that I was better than that person to say that's what the real measure of greatness is. So it would be like if, uh, you know, the guy was handsome and intelligent and had everybody really like him, president of his class, I'd say, yeah, but I'm a better basketball player than him. And if it was a better basketball player than me, I'd say, but, you know, I was once as a freshman in high school, I was vice president on my class. And, of course, the president, well, I got better grades than he got. And if somebody got better grades, was better looking, uh, had, had more acclaim, was smarter, uh, better at basketball than me, I'd say, but I'm nicer than he is. And that's the quality that matters most. And if the person had all of those, I'd say, he must be arrogant. <laughs> and I'm humble. <laughs> See, I do everything. It's in my human nature to want to feel superior to others. And I believe what's going on in me is a twisting of a divine need in my life that God placed there to be filled by Him. And when I stop turning to Him to fill that need, I turn to the world to seek your approval. I lie to myself so I can feel I have glory. You see, God has lived as a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, with an eternal relationship among himself. And at the center of that relationship is God loving, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loving each other and also honoring and glory, glorifying each other. And so they are filled with love and glory. So when God creates us in his image, his imprint is upon us to have love, and to have glory. The problem with the disciples is they were seeking the wrong glory. They sought a glory of superiority, whereas God seeks a glory for all. Jesus said, Father, glorify me that I may glorify you. And Jesus says to the Father, I give them, I give my disciples my glory. Disciples didn't think. They only thought of themselves in their personal glory. But real glory is that which you share, which you lift up others with you. They were wrong about glory because they thought earthly praise by following earthly measure of glory rather than the praise of God in divine way of glory. 
they sought the path of power to glory. Jesus warned them. He said, don't be like the Gentiles. Don't be like those in, in our culture today who lord it over others. But you are to serve. That's the pathway to glory. And ultimately, we turn aside from God, just like Adam and Eve. In the garden, God bestowed glory upon Adam and Eve. They were made in the very image of God. They were made CEO of the entire earth. God valued and treasured them. But they believed a lie. Satan came and said, if you eat that tree, you will be like God. You will have equal glory, not reflected glory. You will have equal glory with God. And they sought glory outside of the glory that God bestowed upon them. And so, we as all fallen creatures have a glory hole that instead of turning to God and how much He treasures us and values us, we turn to the world and we turn to all the wrong places. And Jesus is going to cut through that value system and say, Disciples, if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, and notice, the disciples didn't ask about entering the kingdom of heaven. They asked about who's the greatest. And Jesus says, have you even entered? Because you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you are like this little child. And he he takes a child in his arms. Unless you are like this little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So what is the quality? What is the quality that Jesus sees in children, which is necessary for us in order for us to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Is it their personal humility? Their children don't brag, right? Is it their selflessness? They don't. You know, they're always thinking of others. They're, right, they're always giving their toys away. Is it, you know, the quality is they are completely dependent upon others for everything. And what Jesus is saying is, unless you are completely dependent upon me, for your entrance into the kingdom of heaven, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And it is pictured so perfectly when we look at Jesus' parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee who go up to pray. And in that story, Jesus says, two men went up to pray to the temple and the tax collector went up there and he said, Lord, thank you. That you didn't make me like other people. That sense of superiority. In fact, he was seen as superior by everybody in the religious world. Everybody in the culture saw the Pharisee as certainly superior to the tax collector. He said, thank you, you didn't make me like, like those others. Because I don't sin like they do. And I do all the right things. I pray like you want me to. I fast like you want me to. And... Here is a man who is dependent upon himself to enter into the kingdom of heaven. God, let me in. 
I'm part of you. I have relationship with you because I am so good and I'm not like those sinful people. The tax collector goes before God and he is so broken over his sin he can't even lift his eyes to heaven. He, he buries his eyes downward. And he says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's saying, Lord, I have nothing to offer you I not only sin, I am a sinner. Everything that comes out of me is a sinner. I have nothing to offer you. Somehow I need your mercy. I need your propitiation is the word, which means, God, you need to be satisfied in some way about my sin because I can't earn my way. And of course, Jesus Christ provided that that satisfaction when he died on the cross. We do not enter the kingdom of heaven unless we are like a child. We depend upon and trust in Christ to earn our way into heaven for us, to pay our way in. The child hasn't earned any money to get into Six Flags. His parents pay for it. We cannot earn our way into a relationship with God, into the kingdom of heaven. God pays the way through Jesus Christ. And Most secular people don't understand that. I hear over and over again when people talk about heaven, is he good enough? Yeah, he's good enough. No, he's not good enough. Yeah, he'll be in heaven because of he's so good. But that same attitude seeps its way into the church as well. And there are many who grow up within the church who still think it's we have to earn our way to God through our morality. So, we will be humbled when we say, I am a sinner. I can only get to you, God, by what you've done for me. Ephesians 2 says, By grace you are saved through faith, not of yourselves, lest anybody... Boast. Yes, if we get in on our own, we can boast about it. I am the greatest because I achieved it. And Jesus says, he turns it upside down and says, there's no way you can boast about a relationship with me because you didn't earn it. Then he says, anyone who receives... One such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one to stumble, one of these little ones to stumble. Now, what he's saying here is, first, greatness is found in humility. Secondly, greatness is found in caring for the little ones. Caring for those with the greatest needs. And this is a value our society embraces, that uh, we care for children, and we can expand that to say all who are like children in their needs, all everyone who needs help, we are to be there and to care for them, whether they be the widow or the orphan, the poor, the prisoner. And our society believes that today. In fact, 
service to others has taken over. Even schools require it. Kids flock to missions trips because they know this is so important. It is Christ-like to do that. What we don't realize is that entire attitude comes from Jesus Christ, not from a secular culture. Rodney Starks, a uh, professor of sociology and religion at Baylor University, wrote the book, The Rise of Christianity, and he is an expert in the era and time in which Jesus lived and spoke. And he said this, In contrast to the pagan world, and especially among the philosophers, mercy was regarded as a character defect and pity as a pathological emotion. Because mercy involved providing unearned help or relief. It's contrary to justice. As E.A. Judge explained, critical, classical philosophers taught that mercy indeed is not governed by reason at all. And humans must learn to curb the impulse. The cry of the undeserving for mercy must go unanswered. Judge continued, pity was a defect of character unworthy of the wise and excusable only in those who have not yet grown up. That's the culture Jesus spoke into. A culture that did not value children. Not until they reached puberty and could actually do something for you. In fact, in the Roman society, children, unwanted children were often given placed out in the wilderness so that the elements or wild beasts would take care of them, get rid of them, because they were a nuisance. And Jesus breaks through that and he warns, because this is the culture of the day, do not despise the little ones. Jesus turned our world upside down. And when we buy into these values, we are buying into the values that Jesus Christ gave us that would not be here apart from him. So care for the little one. And we, that resonates with us. It's what we should be all about. But the next words can sound very disturbing to many. They seem to speak what people think when they think of the worst of Christianity. For Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, and notice here he has now changed the word from child to little one. Little ones who believe in me. Now, in the Gospel of John, a person who is said to believe in Jesus is a person who has a relationship with God, who is in the kingdom. In this passage, a person who believes in me is most likely one of the people who are following Jesus. Sometimes everyone following Jesus was called a disciple because a disciple was a learner. So I believe this word includes young believers, And those who are following Jesus, seekers who are still trying to determine whether or not Jesus is the way and all that he said he he is. So, he says, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it is better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. 
And he goes further. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. It's necessary for temptations to come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And I know to many ears of secular people, this sounds like Christians getting up and railing against the world with a hateful, spiteful spirit, condemning the world, demonizing it, not loving the world. And yet these words come from a compassionate, loving Savior who is a shepherd that pursues you of his love, who would give his life for you. That is the one who speaks these words. Woe to you. Woe to the world if you cause a little one to stumble. Our world is quick and ready to come around the children. We are heartbroken. We are crying out about those girls that were kidnapped in Nigeria. We are praying for them all. Religious, irreligious, secular, Christian, joined together, wanting those little ones to be physically saved and brought back home. And that's right. But Jesus goes a step further. And though Jesus cares for the physical lives, he cares even more so for that which is eternal, not just temporal. He cares for our spiritual lives. And we would cry out to those kidnappers, Woe to you! And Jesus feels that same feeling about those who would cause a little one to spiritually stumble. By the way, the the word here isn't sin. The word is cause them to stumble, to trip on their way to acquiring faith. Jesus loves us that much that he gives this warning. If we as Christians speak out, woe to the world, let us do it with the humility that Christ has called us to in the love that Christ has for it. Let us cry out to the world with a broken heart. Look out for the way you are causing people to stumble and trip over Jesus Christ today. But you know, it isn't just our world It's the world value system that also enters into the church that can cause them to stumble. There are religious values system that causes little ones to stumble. And I think we need to first look at ourselves. How do we cause little ones to stumble? We cause them to stumble through religion and legalism and moralism. And that's saying that we, by our emphasis on living a good life and being good, that somehow it comes across to people because our society thinks this is what Christians are saying. You have to be good to get to heaven. And that leads people to stumble over the fact that they need to be dependent upon Christ. 
Jesus warned the religious leaders of that day. He said, woe to you who, who scan the earth to make a single disciple and then you turn that disciple into twice the son of hell that you are. Turned him into a legalist. So many people are turned off by the legalism in Christianity that is lived out apart from a living relationship with Jesus Christ. We are to live moral, godly lives, but it comes not in order to earn anything from God. It has to come from the depth of a love relationship with him. And the world can see the difference. But if that relationship is not there, the world sees legalism and they trip over it. We can cause little ones to stumble when we really believe we are superior to those who do not know Jesus Christ. I don't, the only reason we do that is because of the sin nature in us, because there's nothing in the theology of the gospel of Jesus Christ that should lead us to feeling superior. In fact, we are the only religion that says we are the bottom of the bottom. And God reached down and saved us. We are the least. How we end up saying we're getting across some message to people that we're superior certainly is not in line with the gospel itself. And yet people see Christians as, you think you're better than me. We need the gospel to humble us. So when we speak truth, it's with love and humility. We cause little ones to stumble when we are insensitive to the way they are hearing things and where they are in their lives. When we only think about getting our message across without considering what they're hearing from us. During my tenure here over the last 16 years, we had, a, we had an incident where within our youth group, one of our teens was struggling with same-sex attraction. And that teen overheard others in the youth group laughing about mocking and ridiculing. Not that person, but in general, those with same-sex attraction. That teenager left the youth group, never to come back, turned on the Lord himself because we caused him to stumble. Because we are not sensitive or caring enough to try to hear what we're saying through the ears of the little ones. But woe to the world. Because the world, you are causing many to stumble over Jesus Christ. You have turned many against Christianity and Christians. How so? By calling good evil and evil good. And that's growing and growing in our society. What God said is wrong is being turned and said, Christians are unloving and uncaring. When Christians speak out and say, God loves people who have same-sex attraction. He loves them so much. He wants them to turn to Him. And that is being 
twisted to be called homophobic and hateful. And those who care for the little ones and the mother of the womb. Being twisted to say that we don't care about women who are suffering. We don't care that they would go and have back alley abortions. Just came news came out uh, just yesterday that one of the television channels canceled a show that two evangelical brothers were going to be in because of the pressure put on by our world because they of their views and what they have said about homosexuality and abortion. And there was a poll taken. Should that channel have canceled these brothers because of their positions on homosexuality and abortion? 52% said yes, their show should have been canceled. That shows us that our world has not only bought into saying good is evil and evil is good, but it's pervasive. And think of that 52%. That's those who are willing to be so intolerant of a person's faith. There are probably others who disagree with these brothers, but want to be tolerant toward their faith. 52% said, no, we don't want to be tolerant toward their faith. We should cancel the show. And that is it. that is gotten itself into our culture so that Christians now are being demonized because of their stand with Jesus Christ. That causes many to stumble. They also cause people to stumble by the way they portray Christianity, by their failure to try to understand it, but their desire to turn people against Christianity, and they misrepresent it. I talk to people, and, and many of them bring up, well, the Crusades and Northern Ireland and religion is the source of all evil. And look at the, the Christians who use the Bible to justify slavery and, and racism over the years, and those are all true. But that is not Christianity. That is counter to Christ himself. That is people who have twisted and perverted Christianity. That is not a clear understanding of Jesus Christ. When Martin Luther King looked at at the churches and saw they weren't supporting him. He didn't say, gosh, those Christians are bad. He said, you Christians are not living up to what Christ has called you to. That's our failure in causing people to stumble. But the world representing Christianity in that way is causing many to stumble. And when our world puts out temptations and life commercials as though certain things, certain evil things, wrong things, are the ways that you'll have fulfillment. They cause many to stumble. Jesus says woe to the world because he loves the little ones, because he cares for them not only physically, but spiritually. Greatness is marked by spiritually protecting the little ones. N.T. Wright, I believe, captures the spirit of today. He says, we want to hear that everyone is all right exactly as they are. That God loves us as we are and doesn't want us to change. 
People often say this when they want to justify particular types of behavior, but the argument doesn't work. When the blind and lame came to Jesus, he didn't say, you're all right as you are. He healed them. They wouldn't have been satisfied with anything less. When the prostitutes and extortioners came to Jesus, he didn't say, you're all right as you are. His love reached them where they were, but his love refused to let them stay as they were. Love wants the best for the beloved. Their lives were transformed, healed, and changed. That spirit is captured in Lady Gaga's song where she sings, Because God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Babies are born blind. Babies are born with heart issues that, untouched, will lead to their death. What would we say about a doctor who delivers such a baby and says, he's born this way. This is God made him. What would we say about that kind of doctor who would let that child die? And yet we're singing today and we're, we're buying into this. That we are born this way, spiritually. But the great physician says, I care so much. I want to reach out to you. I love you as you are, but I love you too much to leave you as you are. The greatest are the humble. The greatest in the kingdom are those who care for the littlest. The greatest are those who care not just physically, but spiritually. And in this last section, we see the good shepherd. The great shepherd leads the flock of 99 to go chase down the one. That's the will of the father. To protect and to pursue the little ones even as they stray. Leave the 99. Get that one and rejoice. Just like the father, when he saw the prodigal son, he rejoiced and he had a party. That's the heart of Jesus Christ in pursuing us. And it's a heart we should reflect. And to my discredit, I have often failed to do that as a minister. I have failed sometimes to pursue broken relationships I've had in this congregation. I've failed to pursue those who've strayed. That, that teenager I told you about who left the church, there's somebody in this church years later still pursuing that individual. Loving, keeping in conversation. That's the spirit that Christ has called us to. William Land says, The reversal of all human ideas of greatness and rank was achieved when the Savior came to be served. Came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus not only said the words, he lived the words out for us. Philippians 2 captures that. When he says to the church, 
Consider one another more important than yourselves. Care for the little ones. Don't merely look after your own self-interest, but look after the interests of others. He said, have this same attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Who, though he existed as God himself with the glory of God, he took off all of that glory. He put on human flesh. He became man among us. Endured humiliation, ridicule. Was sacrificed on the cross for us. He came not to be served, but to serve. That's the model. But Jesus is more than the model. He is the source of us being able to have that same kind of humility. For Jesus put aside his glory so we could have glory. In John 17, Jesus says, Father, I give them the glory that I had with you. Romans 18, it says, God has reached down and he predestined and he he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, and he glorified the believers in Jesus Christ. To do that, he had to take off his glory to die for you and me so that we could have a glory not earned, but given to us by God. And when we bask in the glory and how much God values us. And how much do you value us? How much do we know the value of something? Put it on the auction block. They put up a Picasso. They think they're going to get a couple million for it. They get 40 million for it. It's valuable because of what they pay for it. How much does God value you? What did he pay for you? Not gold or silver or precious stone but the very blood of Jesus Christ. When we receive that glory, we don't need to get it from anyone else. We don't need to think about ourselves anymore. We are free to think about others, to serve them just as Jesus did. Our Father, we come to you thanking you and praising you for Jesus Christ, what he has done for us. Today we heard words that are truth. But for them to become reality in our life, Lord, we have to get with you. We have to let your spirit meet with us, bring these into our hearts and our lives. There's something we can't do one time, but we need to abide in you for these to become a reality. Lord, may we walk with you each day. And Father, as those who care for little ones, and everyone, we lift before you those in our body who are suffering. We pray for Harold Bletchler, uh, Catherine Kidd's father, who suffered a fall. He shattered his femur, and we know at his age this can be a very, very difficult recovery and life-changing. We pray that you uh, minister to him, that you restore him, but most of all, that you meet him where he is. We pray for Catherine's brother, John, as well. And he's struggling as well and now is in a rehab nursing home. Father, uh, 
He is, you, you meet all the little ones. You meet those who struggle. And we certainly pray that you'd meet him and we're precisely where he can understand and grasp you and know you. We grew, it's wonderful to see Ruth happy with us today and how you've walked with her through a long, long journey and how it's had some twists and turns. And thank you for meeting her there. Thank you for her being a model for us and trusting you. Continue to just give her an incredible sense of your presence and your healing touch to bring her through her cancer. For John Quazzo, who still struggles, not even able to walk, and the little progress he's making is is a step-by-step, even though he can't make those steps right now. Uh, We thank you for his spirit and hope you've met him and the family. Continue to encourage them and do bring him back to fullness of health as well. We think of uh, the hopes who are out there ministering to the little ones, from people from other nations who often are away from home and don't have a home here. Thank you for the way they've given them a home and that they first and foremost love them and care for them. And they care for them physically. They've provided so much service to them. They've opened their homes so often, but they care even more so spiritually. So we pray that you'd continue to work through them, touch those young lives, uh, bring them to you that they can go back to their nations and be an incredible testimony of Jesus Christ. So, Father, it is wonderful to be your servants. It is wonderful to be able to offer prayers to you and to join with you in your will in touching our world for Jesus Christ. Amen.